Hebrews chapter 10. I draw your attention to the verses 21 down to 25. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. There are three let us expressions. There is first of all a let us with respect to God. Verse 22, let us draw near, that is unto God. And then there is a let us with respect to faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. And then there is a let us with respect to the assembly or the whole church. Verse 24, let us consider one another. This let us is apostolic application. He has given us doctrine, the Apostle Paul, and I remind you especially of the verses that precede this application. These let us expressions follow on, especially from verse 19 to 21. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, let us. So you see, having therefore this and having therefore that and the other, let us. So it's the application of truth, the application of doctrine, the application when we understand all that we possess in Jesus Christ, we have to live accordingly. And the apostle is saying, let us. Now we looked at verses 19 to 20. We have access to God. Let us therefore draw near. So there's an emphasis on the way. We have an entrance right to God, even though we're sinners, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ has provided this access through his death by his atoning blood. He is himself the new and the living way. When his flesh rent, it was like the veil of the temple renting in two, so that we have free access into the holiest. There's that access. Let us draw near then. So you see the connection. Let us draw near because we have this access. Let us hold fast the faith because we have this access. Let us together help one another on the way because we all together as a church have this access. But there is not only access, there is also attendance. Because in verse 21, 
the apostle adds, and having an high priest over the house of God. This is something further to encourage these let us expressions, these calls. Something foundational. Yes, there's access. There's a way to God. There is the free entrance into the presence of God. But there's an attendant. A living high priest. Always present over the house of God. Now Paul might have left that verse out. He could easily have omitted that sentence. But he wants to tell us that we don't only have this entrance. We have help. We have one who attends to us to encourage us in the entrance and the access. A living person, a great priest. And he is over the house of God. And the house of God here is not a building. The house of God is the church. The house of God is the people of God. The saints. You remember how earlier on in the epistle Paul said Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are you? You're the house. You're the house of God. And the son of God is over you. Paul is saying the same thing again here. Although he's bringing in his priestly office. He's high priest. Over us, over the house of God. This is a wonderful thing. He's near to us. He's watching over us. He's caring for us. He's observing us. He's attending upon us. He's bringing us and drawing us in by his Holy Spirit. So this is a very important sentence that Paul is introducing here. And he truly fulfills this role of being over us. And he has all the power, all the authority, all the ability as prophet to to give us understanding, to give us the light and illumination. And as the king to draw us and to give us the desire and to put the power in our lives so that we want to come into the holy place. And he's the priest who makes it possible who intercedes for us, who represents us before God. He's the very one we need attending to us as we come to God through him. So he's the light to guide us. He gives the means of grace to encourage us. And he gives the Holy Spirit to draw us. So that's a very important word that Paul says. We have this high priest over us. This great priest. I mean after all. What good is a way. If we're not made willing to go by it. What good is a way. If we can't see it. To go on it. What good is a way. If we don't have faith to believe it. We need someone in our lives. Attending to us. To give us the light. To give us the faith. To give us the desire. To go by that way. And that person is this great priest who is over us, who brings us to God. So it's a very important sentence, and there's a lot contained in it. And Paul is not content to go on to the application without saying that. So we don't only need a way, we need faith, we need enlightenment, we need desire, we need promises to plead, we need drawing, we need liberty. We need someone who cares. We need someone who knows our burdens. 
We need someone who is a priest advocate, someone who is always present with us. We need an intercessor, we need a comforter, we need one to draw along beside us, and that is this great priest who is over us. Bless his name. So this great high priest supplies all of this himself. So his being over the church is not a figment, but a reality, supplying all the grace that we need to come to God. Having said that then, a high priest over the house of God, let us. So let us consider then these three points of application. The first then, let us, is with respect to God. Let us draw near. And by drawing near, Paul obviously means to enter into the holiest through Christ. To enter into that place where God is. To come to God. Not just necessarily prayer. Yes, that's what we do when we pray. We draw near, we come to God. That's what we do when we're saved. We come to God. We draw near to God through Christ. So it's a way to be saved. It's a way to live the Christian life. It's the way to behave as a believer. To be always believing in God. Always drawing near to God. Through his son the redeemer Jesus Christ. It's the same verb this drawing near. As Paul used in chapter 4 verse 16. Let us come boldly onto the throne of grace. Let us draw near boldly. Onto the throne of grace. So we have to do this. We have to draw near to God. We have to come to the King of Grace on his throne of grace. It's good for me, the psalmist said, to draw near to God. So let us do that. Let us draw near to God daily. Let us certainly draw near to God in his house, be conscious of his presence, and come to him through the mediator. So the believer here is invited. Let us draw near. You're invited in, child of God. You have a liberty. You have an open door. You're welcome into the presence of God. You're called to come. The Lord is always saying, Come unto me. Come into my presence. God is always gracious to his people. You remember Esther? Afraid to go into the king. You just couldn't run into the presence of the king in olden times. It was dangerous to do that, to presume upon that. But if the king held out his scepter, you could touch it and find acceptance. And in Jesus Christ, the scepter is always extended to us. We can come into the presence even of God, the holy place where the holy God is. The remembrance of your sins does not prevent your entrance, your access. You have liberty. You have boldness through the blood of Jesus Christ. God is ever gracious. And he's always reaching out his scepter for you to touch his scepter of mercy. He turns none away. Him that cometh to me, he that draws near to me, I will in no wise cast out, always extending his scepter of mercy and that scepter of mercy is the mediator, his son, our saviour, Jesus Christ. He's able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God. 
by him. Everyone who comes by this way, Christ is able to give them acceptance before God. Now the important thing in regard to this drawing near to God is our hearts. Because what does it say there in verse 22? Let us draw near with a true heart. The heart. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. We don't see the heart. We just see the outward appearance. And we hear the profession. But God, he doesn't go by that. He doesn't go by the outward appearance. And he doesn't go by by the profession. That's just for the ears of men. He goes by the heart. He reads her heart. He sees her heart. So we have to draw near with a certain kind of heart before God. He wants her heart. Son, give me thine heart. Remember how the Lord said, This people that draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He knows it. He sees it. He doesn't listen to the words, the eloquent prayer, the long petitions. No, he looks at the heart. Their heart is far away. And that's possible. It's possible to pray eloquent prayers and all the while our heart be far from God. But God listens to the heart. And we have to come to God with with our hearts. It's useless religion without heart. And ritual and form as important as they are in the worship of God, they are useless without heart. So the most important thing of all is, is a heart. And we, we saw that, did we not, in our studies in Psalm 119, how often this was emphasized. I just remind you of several of the verses. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. The heart, draw near with the heart. Seek him with the heart. With my whole heart have I sought thee. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes. I cried with my whole heart. That's just five examples out of very many in Psalm 119. David knew this. This importance of the heart in coming before God. God especially wants a true heart. We're thinking about the kind of heart with which we ought to come before God, draw near to God. And the first thing, the primary thing, the very basic and the foundational thing is sincerity. A true heart. Just to be honest with God. Even if we must confess our sins. Even if we must tell him of our shortcomings. Even if we must tell him how we feel and how we feel so miserable about ourselves, even if we have to tell him all of that, even if we have to open our heart and say all of those things, let's do it because it's honesty before God and that's what he wants. An honest heart, true heart, is in the text. He wants sincerity. We must be upfront with God. We must never forget that we cannot hide things from him. We must remember that he doesn't judge by our appearances outwardly, but he sees the heart. So to think to fool God is very irreverent. In fact, it's despicable. We can't fool God. We have to be honest before him. In our spirits before the Lord, there must be no guile with him, no deceit with him. 
Walk in the light and be honest. The blood's there to wash and cleanse and purify. But be honest. Be sincere. Don't be blaspheming him by thinking that you can hide your sins from him and hide your heart. Even if we have to beat upon our hearts, let us do so. Remember how God said concerning Judah, Oh, she hasn't turned unto me with her whole heart. But feignedly, saith the Lord. And if our hearts are true, congregation, then they will certainly be humble and contrite, not high and lofty and self-righteous and arrogant. None of us can ever come before God with a true heart like that. No, the sacrifices of God, and that's what we have to come before him with, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You see, a broken and a contrite heart is, is an honest heart. It's being sincere with God. It's hoping in his mercy. It's depending on his atoning blood in Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible says that the high and holy one who dwells in that holy place, who also inhabits all eternity, I dwell in the high and holy place, he says, but with him also that is of a humble and contrite spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So he has a special place for contrite hearts because contrite hearts are really the truest hearts of all before God. So this is what the apostle means. Let's be sincere. Let's be genuine. Let's have honesty before God when we come near to him. It's the first basic requirement, isn't it? But not only honest hearts, we must also have confident hearts. Because it says here in the text, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. So here's confidence in the Lord, confidence in God, He that cometh to God must believe that he is. He must have confidence in God. He must have assurance of God's grace. Assurance of Christ's compassion. Assurance of the truth of the gospel. We don't come in a blind sort of wishfulness and a vain hopefulness that it'll all work out okay. But no, in confidence of Christ. In confidence of our high priest. In confidence of that blood that maketh atonement for sin. In confidence of the grace of God and the hearty invitations of the gospel. In full confidence, full assurance as it is of faith. Confidence of the new and living way. Assured that you are received in Christ and for his sake if you bleed his name. And this confidence is essential to the liberty and the boldness that we ought to have as the children of God. Now this assurance, this fullness of assurance, it admits of degrees. Because obviously there's full assurance, let us go with full assurance. So there's lesser assurance as well. And so there is, and there's different degrees of assurance in the people of God. And that can increase and decrease over time or whatever. It can wax and wane. But the best thing of all is to be going in with the full assurance. Confident in Jesus Christ. And that's important. Essential. There is no reason why we cannot have that confidence. 
as we'll see in a wee moment, because whenever you consider Christ, whenever you consider his cross work and the power and value of his blood, whenever you consider his invitations and his promises and his marvelous grace, you ought to have that confidence, that assurance. And that gospel brings us to this full assurance of our acceptance and in our justification through Christ. But there's not only necessity of an honest heart and a confident heart of faith, but also of a purified heart. Because what does it say here? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts. Here's this heart business again. Always the heart. Always the emphasis on the heart. Our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's this need of purification. And really this is the grounds of our confidence. This justification that we have in Jesus Christ. This purification that we have in the blood of the Lamb. What is described here is not something that Christians are seeking. But something that they have. That they possess. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having. This is what we have. Hearts that have been purified. It's happened once in the past on the grounds of justification. Our hearts sprinkled, our bodies washed. This has happened to us if we're Christians. We've been washed. We've been justified. So we're not to think that these are things we're seeking and desiring to achieve. No, that's not what the Apostle is saying here. These are the things that you possess. These are the things that you have in Jesus Christ. And he may be alluding to baptism, because baptism symbolizes what all we have in Jesus Christ when we were saved, when we were justified. We received the purification. We received the washing. We received the sprinkling. And the baptism in the water portrays that. It sets that forth. That happens at your justification in Jesus Christ when you are redeemed and saved through faith in Christ. And so literally the body has received the washing of the water in the baptism. The sprinkling has been taking place in the, in the sign and in the seal of the reality that has taken place in the heart in the life, in our whole humanity, whenever we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and purified by the word of the gospel. Now are you clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Justified freely, according to his grace. So the saint is justified. The saint has been purified. The saint has the answer for all the sins that have been upon his conscience in the purification of the blood of the Lamb, therefore he can go with boldness and full confidence of faith near to God. This is what you possess. Let us draw near, because you possess this. And of course, we do sin and we do fail and we falter and fall and we have to be washed afresh as it were and we have to confess our sins and if we do confess our sins the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us and washing away 
all of our sins. So, so this first led us then with respect to drawing near to God. And then secondly, there is this led us with respect to the faith of the gospel. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. So we've been thinking about our feet. You know, drawing near, going on the way toward God through Christ, walking towards him. But now there is the hands here. As we walk by the new and living way, we're to hold fast something. And we're not to waver. And we're not to be discouraged and drop it and throw it away and forget about it. No, whenever we're attacked by the devil, we're holding fast this profession of faith. And so that's what we have here. Now this is not so much that confidence and trust as in the previous verse, that word faith. But this is the, the hope, the things promised to faith. The acceptance, the forgiveness, the eternal life, all the promises, all the promises of eternal life, all the promises of the forgiveness of sins, all the promises of the inheritance, the faith of the gospel, that which is promised in the gospel, sometimes the word is translated hope. Hold fast the profession of the hope. The hope that we have in Christ. The hope of the forgiveness of sins. The hope of being with God forever and ever. The hope of the new heavens and the new earth. Forever and ever. Let us hold fast the confidence of our hope. That hope which our high priest which is over us has promised us. He's the one who has promised us this. He has given us the hope. He's given us the promises of the gospel. And we have to hold them fast. We have to believe them. We have to continue to be persuaded concerning them. We mustn't give them up easily. And he goes on to talk about apostasy and the danger of giving these things up easily. But no, hold fast. And don't waver. Whoever knocks a heart out of you, however the devil assaults you, don't waver. But hold fast. Be resolute. We could write that over our Bibles, couldn't we? Hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the, the promises of the scriptures. Hold fast until the end. And there's good reason why you should hold fast. And there's no reason to waver because he is faithful, that promise. This high priest, this high priest who's over the house of God, this high priest who gives us all the exceeding great and precious promises, this high priest who says, I am the way, no man comes unto the Father but by me. And him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. This high priest whose abounding promises go on and on. And we can believe him. And let us hold fast those promises. And that means to, to find them, to think upon them, to reflect upon them, and to be encouraged by them. As, as the apostle said in the earlier chapter 3, Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Do you remember we preached on that text? Hold fast, confidence, the rejoicing that you have in that hope unto the end. Here he repeats it again. He's bringing it in again. You still have to keep holding fast that confidence in the promises and in the word of God. As he said in chapter 4, we have a great high priest. He's passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast 
our profession. Do you see how often he repeats this? Hold fast. Why does he say this all the time? Because he's seen so many people not holding fast. He's seen so many people giving up. He's seen so many people turning back. He's seen so many people casting away the promises of the gospel as profitless and useless. He says, don't do that. Hold fast. Even the Savior uses this word. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. We have to hold fast the gospel and the promises, saying we have this great high priest over us. Let's never be discouraged. Let's never drop the word. Let's never be shaken in our confidence. And then this led us with respect to the assembly, to the church. Verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. So Paul in this epistle, you have to know that he's not into individualism. That's so abounding in our Western world. We've forgotten the idea of a corporate society, a community, the family. It's all individualism. One man, one vote, one man, one this, one the other. You're just your own wee personal individual. You have your own wee personal religion. You have your own wee personal devotions. Uh, the Bible's not like that. The Lord Jesus did not teach us to say, My Father, which art in heaven. The Lord Jesus taught us to say, Our Father. It's, it's corporate. It's community. It's congregational. It's assembly. It's the church that he draws near to himself. It's the whole body, not we one or two we special persons here and there. No, we all together draw near unto God as the church. He's the high priest over the family. He's the high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. And we're not by ourselves. And so we don't go on in our wee individualism. We have to consider one another. Those on the way with us. We're all on the way together. We're all drawing near together unto God. We're members of the house. We're members of one another. Didn't I point out that word brethren? We're brethren. We have a unity. In Jesus Christ our elder brother. We're all one. And so we don't draw near. And leave the church behind. But we do so with one another. Even whenever we pray privately. We ought to be mindful of one another. Our drawing near is corporate. Even our private drawing near unto God is corporate in our mind. And it's very good to use the plural pronoun in our praying, even in our private praying, as our Lord taught us. So we're all the same way. We're all on the same ground. We all have the same priest over us. We're all sprinkled the same. We're all washed the same. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We're all drawing into the same holy place. And Paul doesn't want any of us to be unconcerned about the others. And so he says, let us consider one another. We have to consider one another. The word of God says it. Don't just consider yourself. Consider one another. How do you consider one another? Well, to provoke. Now, there's plenty of provocation goes on in the world today. 
You get that, you face that. But in the Church of Christ, the provocation is different. You're not to provoke in a wicked kind of way, but you're to provoke to love. And that is, that is to encourage. To encourage and to stir up to love and to good works. So let us consider one another to help one another, to provoke one another unto love, to stir one another up to do good. Let us labor together. Let us encourage one another together. We do this provoking by, by encouraging, by stirring up, by setting an example as well. This is what we have to do. And also we have to maintain the assembling together. Because what does he say here? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. He brings this in. You remember how since the day of Pentecost, it's always been the practice of the church that they were together with one accord in one place. They had the meeting place. They had the assembly. They continued steadfastly in their assemblies and the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. The synagogue worship was carried on in the New Testament church. These assemblies were formed all over the place. The people of God were expected to come to the assemblies and to carry out their drawing near to God together in the worship of God. And so you can't draw near to God as a corporate body if you're not together at times. So there are the times when we have to be together. We have to assemble together. And the not assembling together is a disobedience to God. And it is a sin. We, we come together and what do we do? Well, the, what will be the most important thing of all in our assembling together? Exhorting. And the reason why Paul brings in this in, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, because, you know, he has a problem that we face in our, our churches today. People don't come to church. He saw it himself. And so he has to put it in here. Not forsaking the assembling together as the church, as the manner of some is. You know, there's some people that only come out now and again. This isn't right. This isn't Christian. This isn't drawing near to God. This isn't holding fast the profession of the faith. This isn't remembering the high priest that is over the house of God. That's not right. Forsaking the assembling together. Don't, don't let us do that. But let us come together. And what's the main thing in the assembling together? exhortation, exhorting one another, encouraging one another. And we have the word of God being preached, exhorting us, and we go out encouraging one another and speaking about the word of God. And The exhorting here is drawing along beside the silly word of comfort and encouragement. That's what we have to do. And Paul himself says, exhort one another daily, chapter 3, verse 13. While it's called today. Oh we don't know what will happen tomorrow. And we're so easily hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He said in chapter 3. So every day let us exhort ourselves. Let us exhort one another. And then in chapter 13 verse 22 at the end he says. Brethren suffer the word of exhortation. Listen to the preaching. Listen to the exhortation you get in your assemblies. From the word of God. Suffer it. You know, some people can't suffer preaching. Some people can't stick preaching. Some people would have less of preaching and more of this and more of that and more of the other. But no, exhorting. The only word he uses here, the only verb 
in connection with the assembling of the people of God, exhorting one another. And so we have to especially give place to that. We need exhortation. The devil's so mighty. Our faith is so weak. Sin is so deceitful and it easily hardens our hearts. And we can easily stay in our conscience and become hardened and indifferent to the Lord. And the word of God not penetrate anymore. And so we need exhortation to keep prodding us. To keep provoking us. To keep encouraging us and stirring us up. Then the apostle wraps all of these led us exhortations with a final word. At the end of verse 25, so much the more, not less, let us not draw near less, let us not, as it were, forsake the assembling of ourselves more and more, no, let us more draw near to God, let us more, as it were, come with a true heart, let us more hold fast the profession of our faith, so much the more let us. As you see the day approaching. So let us hold fast the more. Let us consider one another the more. Let us provoke the more. Let us assemble the more. Let us exhort the more. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So much the more. Not less. This applies us to all the previous verses. Not just to the exhortation. But to everything else that he said before this. And all of these let us more. Much more and more, not less and less. Well, why, why, why much more and more and not less and less? Because you see the day approaching. That's what he says, you see the day approaching. So let us more and more, not only because we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near more and more, but also because the day is approaching. It's near the end of the day. The dawn is coming. The night is nearly over. Death's knocking at the door. We need it more and more as we draw near to the end. The day of opportunity is going. The, the end of time is before us. The end of all things, as Peter says, is at hand. Eternity's on the horizon. It's nearly over. Behold the Lord cometh. So much the more as you see the day approaching. You've only a little time left, brethren and sisters. Only a little time for your meetings. Just a little time more for assembling together. Just a little time more to encourage one another. Just a little time more to hold fast the profession of your faith. In this dark ungodly world. Just a little time more to enjoy the Lord in this world. In this fallen humanity in which we live at present. Just a little more time. Let us.